0: Heavenly Father, the reason we're here today is our heart's desire is to meet with the one who made us and the one who loves us and sent his son to rescue us. And so my prayer right now, Father, is that you would be very gracious to all the people who are here today, to the kids ministry down the hall, and to the people who may hear my voice um, through the recording. I pray that you're powerful Holy Spirit would come and would remove any distractions in me, any distractions in our minds, and open the Word of God for us so that we can see into your heart and that we can do what should not be possible. We can think God's thoughts after him. And so my prayer today is that you would come, you would be with us, Father. Your presence would fill this room and that you would speak to each and every individual in this room, myself included, especially. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So we've been in a series for the last few weeks called In Christ. That's what we've been calling it. And um, Paul has, at this point in the book of Colossians, come to a very critical juncture. He wants the Colossian people— to know who they are in Christ Jesus, to know who they are. What does it mean for a human being to be united with Christ? And so by way of introduction, what I want to do is I want to briefly, very briefly, recap the last four weeks so that as we get into this text, we know where we are. We have good footing. Um, So the first week we looked at what it means to walk in Christ, what it means to live in Christ, to live one's life in constant dependence and reliance on Jesus Christ through faith. And we looked at this idea that we are branches of a vine, and Jesus is the vine, and we are branches, so we get all of our life, all of the source of our joy comes from Jesus Christ. And then in the weeks after that, we looked at this concept of being filled in Christ, that anything in our lives apart from Jesus is ultimately empty, and useless. He brings meaning to it, and we experience the fullness of God only in Christ Jesus. Part of being united with Jesus by God's grace is being filled in Christ, and the purpose of that filling is that we might fill the entire world, the cosmos really, all of the created reality outside of here with the knowledge of the living God, the glory of God. That's what the ultimate purpose of that is, which brings us to where we are today. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Colossians 2, verse 11. Colossians 2, verse 11. Begins like this. In him, that's in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." So a ton of theology there, a ton of very big confusing words if we're walking through this text. First time he's used some of these, some of this language. Um, I want to be very careful as we go through this and very slow and methodical and and not miss anything that would be helpful. Um, So Paul begins by telling the Colossians in this passage what happened to them when they were united with Christ Jesus and what happened to us individually as believers when God the Father joined us to his Son, Jesus. Here's verse 11 again. He says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what is Paul saying in this verse? Well, he's telling the Colossians that everyone who is in Christ Jesus is circumcised. They have been circumcised, which for the Gentiles hearing this would be a little bit strange, because in the first century there was no circumcision at all for the Gentiles, Um, and this is a very odd concept, except Paul at the very beginning is making a very clear distinction. When he says the word circumcision, he's not referring to something that's made by hands. He's referring to something that happens without hands, something he calls the circumcision of Christ. So what on earth is he talking about here? To understand this, the concept he's laying out, we really need to understand what it is distinct from. And parents, if your kids are here, don't worry. I'm not getting into the details. My wife told me to be sensitive about circumcision. And I'm like, of course I'm gonna be sensitive about circumcision. Um, I'm not gonna get into any details. uh, But I do wanna look at where this comes from in the Bible because it's critical to us understanding this. So what is Paul's contrast to a circumcision without hands? Genesis 17 gives us that answer. So if you've got your Bible, please grab that and go to Genesis 17. I'm going to read a passage of 10 verses, and this will give us an understanding of what Paul is contrasting this idea in Colossians 2. And it's very critical that we understand the words that are being used here because there's promises that are being made to a man. So Abram has been walking with God for about a quarter of a century at this point, 25 years he's been walking with this God. And God has over that time richly blessed him and shown great love to him. And he's made a number of promises to him. These promises are referred to in Scripture as covenants. They are a binding agreement between God— and between Abram. And so chapter 17 is really effectively the last time that is kind of the final promise that God makes to Abram. And it's kind of the culmination of all the promises that he's made so far, and really the springboard through which the fulfillment of those promises is acquired. And so let's start with verse one. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. And said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God comes to Abram and he makes this covenant. He says to him, I am God Almighty. In the Hebrew, this is El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant with you. This is a big deal and we know it's a big deal because of Abram's response. He falls flat on his face. When the God of the universe shows up at your doorstep and expresses his sovereign, almighty power, his omnipotence, and then tells you to walk before him and be blameless, the response you have, the appropriate response, is to fall on your face. And Abram hears the cue, and he falls, and God makes this promise, which is remarkable to him. He says, I'm going to make you, even at the age of 99, a few weeks back, we looked at Paul's interpretation of the 99 is that he was as good as dead. Even at the age of 99, I will make you the father of many nations. From you, Abram, will come kings even. And he changes his name. He changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And this is at 99. He has not had a biological son or daughter yet. (coughs) So this is the covenant that God makes with him. And he says, this is an everlasting covenant. It will never go away. This covenant will never have an end. But here's the stipulation I'm making for you right now. Here's the stipulation. In order for you to partake in this covenant, Abram or Abraham now, every male among you must be circumcised. Every male offspring that you have must be marked by this covenant and signify this covenant. God's very Serious about making this clear. He's saying, Abraham, I will give you many nations. This is my eternal covenant for you, but I want you and your people to be marked by this covenant so that the world, when they see you, when they interact with you, they know this is a people for me. This is my people. These are the people for my possession. And so at that point, God separates Abraham from the entire world. And the only demarcation of this separation is the act, at this point, is the act of circumcision for all men. And so generation after generation after generation, the Hebrew people, the people that come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would be marked by this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But this isn't what Paul's talking about in Colossians 2, is it? It can't be what he's talking about in Colossians 2 because the circumcision in Genesis 17 is done by hands. It's a physical sign given exclusively to an ethnic group and not to any other people group. What is Paul talking about then in Colossians 2? Why bring up this word circumcision that's not done by hands? Before we even need to get to the New Testament, the Old Testament actually has a lot to say about this. And so... If we go to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 16, we see this manifest. After Moses secures the Ten Commandments and brings them down to God's people, the Israelites, the Ten Commandments, which are God's means, his rules for giving the people of Israel lasting joy in life, Moses tells them this. He says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven. And the heavens of heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So what does Moses mean here? The heart. He starts out by saying God owns everything. He's like, I want to make this clear before I give this imperative. God owns all of creation. You can have anything in all of creation, but he set his heart on you and your fathers. He chose you above all the peoples in the world, not because you were special, not because you did anything to earn it, not because you had any mark or quality before he met you. You were just like all the other peoples. In fact, you were the weakest of all the peoples. But because of grace, he loved you and your fathers. And Moses tells them, therefore, circumcise your hearts. Stop being stubborn and disobedient. And Moses here recognizes a simple fact about all true obedience. All true, authentic, sincere obedience flows from desire, flows from your passion. For people to truly obey God's law, they must first have a heart that is capable of delighting in God and his law. That's what true obedience is. So Moses tells them, you need to circumcise your heart. You need to sever yourself from anything in this world that would cause your heart to love something greater than the giver of all things, God, who gave you the things that you love in this world. And by and large... We can ask a question now, looking back across the Old Testament, did Israel actually obey this commandment? And we find out throughout the book that they actually did not. They will, in fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses will make a prophecy, a prediction, that will come uh, come true throughout the rest of the Old Testament. They will defy and disobey God. They will rebel against God and ignore his commandments and his rules, which, again, are for their joy. They're there to keep them safe and to show them God's love. And they ignore it. And then we get this promise in Deuteronomy 36. Listen to this. This is Moses again. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live, that you may live. So what's the point? The point of that text is that the people of Israel cannot circumcise their own hearts. It is for them physically and spiritually impossible. The only person who can cause them to love God with all of their heart and all of their soul is God. The only person who can give them the life that is promised in Deuteronomy 36 is God. It is God himself. He has to circumcise their hearts. They are in desperate need of a heart change. They are in desperate need of this. And there's only one person who can do it, the living God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2 when talking about the role of, the point of circumcision. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Paul's point here, Paul is an Israelite who's been circumcised on the eighth day, according to Philippians 3. His point here is that outward circumcision was not meant to be anything in and of itself. It was merely a visible seal of an internal reality. Physical circumcision, which is ultimately irrelevant, is not a is is only meant to be a sign of inward circumcision. And if there isn't any inward circumcision, then the, the any physical manifestation is absolutely irrelevant. He says it is a matter of the heart. The Spirit of God brings it about it. The laws and rules can't actually do this. It's not something you can strong arm as a person into existence. A list of rules will never, ever, ever change your heart about how you feel about them. It requires the spirit of the living God, which is why Paul in Colossians 2 refers to this as the circumcision without hands. Paul is saying that physical circumcision doesn't matter anymore. Under the new covenant, when Jesus came, does not matter anymore. What matters is what does your heart look like? What was the internal reality that actually mattered from the very beginning? And before we dig into what this actually is in this passage and what it means to be circumcised in your heart, or what it means, actually, what we need to do first is this. We need to look at the opposite. What does it mean to be uncircumcised in your heart? If you look at Colossians 2.13, this is what Paul Paul says, and you, in Colossians 2.13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So Paul's telling the Colossian Christians here, before you were in Christ Jesus, before you were placed by God in Christ, you were dead. You were dead. And this deadness was most clearly manifested in two realities. Number one, your trespasses. You had a history of, of dishonoring God, a massive record of debt, which we'll get to in a few weeks in Colossians. That was the first reason why you are dead. The second is this deadness arrives from an uncircumcision of your flesh. Before Christ, your flesh was not governed by a delight in God. It was not governed by a disposition to love him and please him for who he is objectively. Your flesh was dominated by anything but God. It preferred anything but who he is. (laughs) And what that really means is this. You love God's stuff more than God's love, or more than God himself. You love God's things in creation more than the God who gave you those things. These two ingredients, trespasses and this uncircumcision of the flesh is what bring about your deadness. Now, God willing, next week, we're going to look at the miracle that happens when God takes an unbelieving heart and he breathes life into it and gives that heart new affections and a new delight in what is truly delightable. Um, But this week, I want us to fix our eyes on this, this work of circumcision without hands. What does that mean? Here's verse 11 again. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he defines this as putting off the body of the flesh. What does he mean by that? He clearly doesn't mean your entire material body because you have to be alive to experience this. But in order for him to use the phrase body of flesh, it must be intimately connected to your physical body. It must be deeply connected to your physical body. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you will know that this shows up actually all over the place. I'm going to read a few passages here. This language about the body of the flesh, the flesh in a human being, is all over the New Testament. Listen to this, First Peter 2.11. Beloved, Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Then Romans 8 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus himself in John 6 says this, the flesh is no help at all. Don't seek any provision in it. It will not help you. And Paul in Galatians 5 tells us this about the works of the flesh. He says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, he's got a long list of, of, of things here, And things like these. And then he says soberly, I warn you, Galatian church, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't inherit it, it's not for them. So, this body of the flesh isn't your material body, but it is the passions in your material body that drive you to sin. They are the passions of the flesh. They are desires that we inherited from Adam by being in Adam, coming from Adam, and therefore they manifest themselves. The fruit of the passions of the flesh are these works of the flesh that Paul listed in Galatians 5, but at the root of all of them is what we had in Romans uh, 8, which is a hostility towards God, a disposition against God. And Paul says with concrete certainty that those who are in the flesh can't please God. They're not able to please God. They're not able to honor him the way they are because they're dominated by their flesh and their desires. Those in Adam cannot please God. So think about this for a second. Moses, 1500 years before Jesus, tells the Israelites that they need to circumcise their hearts. They need to put off the body of flesh and they need to delight in God, who is ultimately the most delightful thing that you can imagine in order to be able to obey him and honor him and love him and trust him. But knowing that this isn't something that they can do on their own, he tells them one day, he says, God himself will circumcise your hearts. He will do this. He will give you, people of Israel, a delight in, in him a joy that will replace your hostility towards him i promise you it and then 1500 years later we're reading this passage in the book of colossians because it's happened this is the circumcision without hands this is the circumcision of christ by putting off the body of the flesh which paul explains now when he describes the act of god in doing this listen to what he says here in uh, colossians 2:11 through 12 the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says in this passage, we have been buried with him in baptism. This is the circumcision of Christ, buried with him. Now, next week, like I said, if God allows, we'll explore what it means to be raised in Christ. But I want to focus on, for the rest of our time together today, what it means to be buried with him. Because this is intimately connected to this heart change that must take place. What does it mean to be buried with Christ Jesus? To have died with him? Why is this the language that Paul uses? Why use this morbid language as the starting line for the life of a Christian? Well, he uses this word baptism, which most of you know as a Christian sacrament, baptism being immersed in water. Um, When someone comes to faith, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the reason we do this isn't because baptism itself is a physical reality that is uh, essential The reason we do this is that baptism displays an internal reality that has already taken place in the heart of the believer. It's already happened. So what is this internal reality? That physical baptism, when we do it, represents. Romans 6, 3 tells us. Romans 6 tells us, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul's saying here that in order for us to have any newness of life, in order for us to have any new affections, we first needed to be buried with Christ Jesus. We needed to die with him. So physical baptism, the submerging of a person in water, is really a picture of death. We are lowered into the water like Jesus was lowered into the earth. And the significance of this event isn't the physical baptism itself. That's an outward display of this. The significance of this event is what it represents, which Paul continues in this passage in Romans. Listen what he says here. For if we have been united with him, with Jesus... In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I love that word, certainly. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So God in his infinite mercy, unites us with Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. So that the union with Christ crucifies in us our old man, the old flesh in us that delights in anything above God and actually has hostility towards God. And when that happens, when God places us in Christ, when he's on the tree, it brings the body of sin to nothing it empties it completely of its power it has no more power it is no longer capable of enslaving us and paul sums up this that it is an objective fact that if your faith is in Christ Jesus you have been set free from sin completely you no longer have to pursue those desires they're not yours anymore you are not dominated by sin anymore and i think we often emphasize forgiveness and that's important We need to emphasize forgiveness because forgiveness of sins at the cross is essential to understanding what happened to us for salvation. But it's also critical to recognize that God's work of redemption, what he accomplished in human beings, didn't stop just with forgiveness. He doesn't just want forgiven people. He will get us that, but that's not his end goal. He is after so much more with us. God wants our hearts. He wants our affections. He wants our desires. He wants us to enjoy him, for that is the reason we were made. And to do that, he had to secure our freedom from our own passions and our own flesh. Verse 10 explains this. It says, for the death that he died, Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also, Romans and Colossians and Risen Hope, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Paul says, given this objective reality, given what happened on the cross, what actually took place there, stop thinking about the things that you loved before you encountered Christ on the cross, you died to your sins. We have put off the body of the flesh. It doesn't control you anymore. It's not your king. You don't bow down to it anymore. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Sin's reign over your life has ended. It is over with. It is no longer king. God has pushed it off the throne and taken his rightful spot. So do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't give it any kind of credit because it doesn't have it anymore. Don't allow it to make you obey its passions. You're not a slave anymore is what he's saying. And the thing about Christianity that makes Christianity unique is that we are told in this book to live out that reality. The reality has happened. Now you are echoing it with your daily actions. It's really objectively happened. And this is, again, the difference between Christianity and every other worldview out there. The distinction is this, whether it's religious, whether it's atheistic, whatever it might be, all other worldviews are rooted in striving to get acceptance from him or from other people or from something you delight in and treasure supremely. I need to earn it. I need to show and prove myself. And Christianity isn't that at all. The gospel says that you're not striving for that. You don't accomplish or earn anything in the gospel. You can't ascend into heaven and take this. This is not yours to take. Heaven had to come down to us. Heaven had to come to us. Jesus had to infiltrate our world filled with people who were enslaved to their own passions and he had to take his people to the cross and die with them so that they would be free from this. We often picture Jesus carrying his cross, which he did, to Golgotha. We have a picture in our minds, whether it's from popular culture or pictures we've seen, We can see that in our minds. But think about it. Crucifixion, the cross was there because he was being crucified. He wasn't being crucified for his own sins. He's being crucified for our sins. And so when he's carrying the cross, he's carrying us there. We are on his back as he goes to the tree. He's going to bring us up there to make us free from this so that all of our hostility, all of our Dishonoring God by not giving him any time of day, by finding him boring, by loving anything else over him, all of that is killed when, he's, when he dies on Golgotha. And so when the justice of God is poured out on Christ, when God's just wrath is unloaded on Christ until he is crushed, we are inside of him and his death counts for us we die that day and we are set free from sin such that Paul in Galatians 2 can tell us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Could we say that together? It's on the screen. I want to read it together, and I want you to wrestle with the fact that in the last eight words of that, if your faith is in him, he's talking about you. He is talking about you specifically. So I'll start. Let's read this together. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ loved you. He loved you. So much that he gave all of himself for you. And we can't even... I can say that and I can feel that, but I can't even conceive of what it means for God, the Son, to give all of Himself for me. Who may wake up on a single day and not even think about God for the first four or five hours. We got a lot of stuff going on. He looks down on me and he gives himself. For me, Jesus Christ, the greatest reality in all of existence, the personification of the very glory of the living God, nothing like him, infinitely worthy, unrivaled in beauty, without equal in power, God in the flesh, surpassing every conceivable measurement of value you can even think of or will ever exist in this universe. And yet, Paul can say with us, the Son of God loved me, and he gave himself for me. And it's because of that we are free. Our freedom from sin right now in our lives is because of what happened on the cross. Everything about you, every single thing about you is new now. It is brand new. Even though you've got indwelling sin, even though you've got passions that still fight against you, You are new. Galatians 3.27 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does he mean, put on Christ? Like a shirt? He means that our identity is no longer in anything else but being in Christ Jesus. That's our identity. We are not in Adam anymore. We are not in what people think about us anymore. We are not in what we make financially anymore. We're not in any of those things. We are in Christ Jesus. That is the dominant reality in our lives. Christ is the solid rock on which we stand because he loved us and he gave himself for us. And that's the foundation. That's the foundation of everything we do in our lives. That even when and I'm ta- I'm going to talk about myself. If you're if you were anything like me or even remotely close to this, or feel this way about yourself, then I pray that you would echo this. When I was the least deserving, the least deserving, and my life was a multitude of sin. And if I'm honest with you, my actions, even if I wouldn't say it, and I would say it, some of you might not, my actions hated God. I hated God. And if I didn't say it vocally, I lived it out. God looks down into that. He looks down into my heart with all of that wickedness. And he says, I can fix that. I can fix that. I can make that new. There's a massive connection between the love of Christ Jesus and what it looks like for our hearts to be changed forever. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5, the the words that Paul uses to describe this transformation from the love of Jesus Christ all the way to, I'm a new human being, I'm completely new. For the love of Christ, Paul says, controls us because we have concluded this, that one, Jesus, has died for all, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, he says, look, the new has come. The old is gone. It's gone. The body of flesh that draws your affections away from God is gone. It's dead. The new, a passionate love for the one who loved you first dominates our hearts. Dominates us. It rules us. It reigns in our hearts. We're not a slave to sin anymore. We're not. We are a new creation. We are completely new. We were crucified with Christ that, th- that those who live in him would no longer live for themselves anymore, but for him who died for their sake. When that sinks into your heart, when that reality sinks into the bottom of your heart, It will, I promise you, change everything for you to feel that reality. That he died to get you. There's a a scene in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. (coughs) Um, It isn't explicitly in the Bible, so forgive me for this, um, if this bothers you. Um, But it expresses everything that we're talking about here. Everything that we're talking about here. Mary The mother of Jesus is running through the streets of Jerusalem trying to find Jesus because he has been just sentenced to being crucified on the cross. He's been flogged, he's been beaten, he's been bloodied. He is a mess of a human being. Almost irrecognizable. He is carrying his cross down the streets while they beat him and spit on him. And Mary hears him groaning. She's in an alley near him. And she looks and sees him fall on his face and the cross pin him to the ground. And she has a flashback of him as a kid running in the middle of the road and falling and her running towards him to pick him up and saying, Yeshua, Yeshua, trying to get him up as a little child. She does the same thing. She runs after her 33-year-old son who's about to die and picks him up, gets the people off him and says, I'm here, I'm here. And he turns to her. And he says, holding her face in his hands, see mom? I make all things new. He picks up his cross and he goes to die. This is the reason God met with Abraham 3,500 years ago to talk about circumcision. It was pointing to that. Him making all things new. This is the reason that God met with Moses and the 10 commandments and told him the circumcision of the heart is what needs to happen Because the circumcision of the heart is new creation. It's God stepping into a broken world and saying, I will make all things new, I promise you. And I'm going to start with your hearts right now. Jesus, when he died on that tree, brought us up with him. And he killed our flesh so that it no longer rains anymore. So that our eyes, the eyes of our hearts could see him as he really is. He bought and purchased for himself a people who could love him because he's infinitely lovely. Our highest joy as human beings is found in one place. It's found in one place and God is fighting for us to see it. It's found in God. It's found in Christ Jesus. Our highest joy is there and it cost him the greatest possible suffering to procure it. Think about God looking into the darkness of your heart and saying, I will have you. I know it looks futile to you. I know it looks bleak. I know it looks impossible. I'm coming for you. I will have you as a son. I will have you as a daughter. You will be mine. And to do that, he makes us completely new. Completely new. We're going to take communion here in a moment. These elements that we're about to take represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. What he gave in Galatians 3.20 to make all things new. The cross was the infiltration of new creation into a broken and dying world that is desperate to need it. I don't have to convince you of that. You just have to watch CNN for five minutes. We need new creation desperately. And God did that on the cross. This is not a light thing to take old broken things and make them completely new. This is amazing. So I ask that you would remember him as you take the elements. Thank him, praise him, and enjoy him. And when you eat these elements, I I would like you to think about those words again. Preach into your own heart these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, little old me, and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father God, The depth of this reality is beyond my capacity to communicate it with any kind of effectiveness. It requires your Holy Spirit to come. It requires the Almighty El Shaddai God to come down and to be with us in this room and to shine your beauty into the deepest parts of our heart where we feel hopeless and bleak and deserving of nothing but your justice, Father. And we need you to say, let there be light where there's darkness and for new creation to blossom inside of us, Father. We don't like dishonoring you. We don't like doing things that hurt other people, Father. We're just inclined to be selfish because of Adam, because of our sin, Cut away all of that, Father. Cut away all of that and circumcise our hearts with a circumcision made without hands. Baptize us in the body of Jesus Christ so that we can experience the fullness of what it means to know God and to love him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.